The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 26-38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be, a great, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thanks again. So today we're talking about Mary, the virgin mother of God's son. And um, let's just name the elephant uh, during this season. There are some who are surprised that there are actually several highly intelligent people who believe this stuff, who believe it actually happened in the way that it's described. Highly intelligent people have come to affirm what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Included among these highly intelligent people, Oxford's C.S. Lewis, Princeton's Jonathan Edwards, whose collection is now housed at Yale University, Harvard's Simon Greenleaf, distinguished professor of law, civil rights uh, activist Martin Luther King Jr., one of the greatest uh, orators uh, in American history, journalists like the Chicago Tribune uh, Lee Strobel and the New York Times David Brooks, scientists like Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo, uh, geneticists like the brilliant Francis Collins, Boston University sociologist Peter Berger, Notre Dame philosopher Alvin Plantinga, novelists such as Tolstoy, Marilyn Robinson, Flannery O'Connor, and so on. And this just scratches the surface of highly intelligent people, including public intellectuals, who believe that a virgin conceived and gave birth to a child. How can this be, the thinking person asks. It's scientifically impossible, not to mention implausible. How could you base your life on something that sounds so much like a fairy tale, a made-up story? And What's true about so many of the names that I just mentioned is that they did not come to faith easily. It took 
inquiry. It, 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 it took somebody daring them to investigate the claims for themselves and to not write it off so quickly. And all of these intellectuals came to the conclusion that the account, as miraculous as it may be, withstands the test of scrutiny. The philosopher Francis Schaeffer, after going through a, an investigative season of his own to, de to determine whether or not he was going to continue in this faith, because he couldn't base his whole life on something that was a lie, came to the conclusion that there's only one reason to be a Christian, because it's true. It's the only reason. And so for anyone who doubts this message, I'm going to present to you somebody today who most certainly had reasons to doubt the message that was being brought to her on that day. Mary herself, who came to the same conclusion as Francis Schaeffer and all of these others that I just mentioned. And I'd like to unpack her experience under a couple of headings. And, and the first is I'd like to talk about the virtue of doubt. The doubt can actually be a good thing. It can be a contributor to faith. And I also want to talk about the glory of faith once our hearts are able to get there. And so let's start, first of all, talking about doubt a little bit. Uh, doubt, contrary to what we might assume, is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. Doubt, actually, for many people, becomes the avenue, the process toward deeply held conviction to the end that you would actually base your entire life, you would actually give your life for these claims. Now, some people come to faith very quickly, very naturally, very easy. And some of you have the benefit of, of growing up in a home where, where Things like this were taught where the Apostles' Creed was recited maybe on a regular basis, where you went to church, where your parents taught you about Christ and your home assumed it was true from the moment you can remember being conscious and you never doubted. Some people are like that. Joseph, uh, who we looked at last week, might be described that way. The word of the Lord came to him. It was the same message that came to Mary. Don't fear Joseph. The virgin, Mary, going to be pregnant. You're going to name the child Jesus. And it says that Joseph got up, did as the Lord commanded. No real process, but Mary's different. It says upon receiving the same message that Joseph did, possibly from the same angel, Mary was greatly troubled. And she's asking questions like, how? How will this be since I am a virgin? And that's just the biological reason for having doubt. There are also several other cultural reasons why Mary would doubt this message. One is that she's from Nazareth. Now, if, if, if you're going to make a big announcement, if you're going to shake the earth with something new, you're going to expect that news to come out of a place like New York City or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., or if it has to do with music or healthcare, uh, maybe Nashville, Tennessee. In those days, you might expect something earth-shattering coming out of the Jewish tradition to come from Jerusalem, the capital city, but no, it's Nazareth, that town about which they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? It was not a, an it city. It was the furthest, furthest thing from an it city. It was small, obscure, 
Rust Belt type of place, known for its poverty, known for its depression. Second reason to doubt what the angel was telling her is it sounds blasphemous because no committed Jew would ever conceive, pun intended, of God also being a human being. In fact, that was such a foreign thought to somebody in Mary's Jewish shoes because Jews of the day, those trained in the, the tradition and heritage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament and, and, and Yahweh, did not even allow themselves to speak the name of God or to write out the full name of God. They, they cut out the vowels when they wrote the name Yahweh because they did not regard themselves as being worthy of speaking or writing the name. And so to think that this same God, this same creator, all of a sudden, he's human also, born out of a sinful woman's womb, inconceivable, if not blasphemous. Another reason to doubt the angel's message was her youth. You know, with such a grand message being brought into the world, you would expect an esteemed rabbi or maybe a chief priest to be the messenger. But no, instead, it is a woman betrothed. And, and in that day and in that time, in that culture, betrothed women were typically between the ages of 12 and 14. So just old enough to join the youth group. Her social standing made it doubtful as well. Luke chapter 2 tells us that when it was time to give the offerings... Uh, to the temple, Joseph and Mary presented two birds. Now, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 14, you see that is the offering that is, um, that is given for poor people to, to, to present in the temple. People who cannot afford a lamb like everyone else. Uh, if you can't afford a lamb, it says in Leviticus 14, then give two birds. That's where we get two turtle doves. That's where it comes from. Not sure where the partridge in the pear tree comes from, but maybe somebody else can share that with us sometime. But the, the last reason why this is a doubtful message is that she is a she. You know, one of the prominent features of Luke among the gospel writers is that he is taking every opportunity that he can to highlight the prominence of women in the story of Jesus, which was a very unusual thing in those days because a woman was regarded as anything but prominent in that culture. If you look at the, the death narratives, Luke is swift to point out that the, the male disciples all fled the scene when it got hard and when Jesus was about to die, but it says that the women from Galilee, the women they followed Jesus all the way to the cross, and they watched in loving support as he was crucified. And then the resurrection account, we see that it's not any of the male disciples, but it's Mary, the mother of James, Mary Magdalene, who was also a psychiatric patient, Joanna, and the other women who witnessed the resurrection of Christ and then are commissioned by the angel of the Lord 
to go tell the 11 men who are hiding because they're scared. And so they do, and they become the apostles to the apostles. And now we have the birth account in front of us where Mary the Virgin is presented. And now in the contemporary West, it's no big deal at all. It's actually sort of second nature. It's obvious to think that, of course, a mom, a woman, women's equality. I mean, women are are just as much the image of God as men are. Women should have just as much of a voice and just as much power and just as much influence as a man. But back then, even in a court of law, women weren't allowed to testify. Even if they had open and shut evidence for the case, they were not allowed to testify because they were not esteemed or regarded by the patriarchy as being trustworthy, reliable witnesses. They were devalued. And so for this and so many other reasons, former atheist C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor, eventually came to this conclusion. Christianity has to be true because no human being would have ever invented it this way. If you're trying to prove that the virgin birth happened and all these miracles happened, you would not choose this kind of person to be your messenger. And so Lewis's brilliant conclusion is the only reason why it reads this way is because that's how it happened. Otherwise, nobody would make the case in this way. And so to those among us who are thinking skeptics, um, first of all, uh, we we want to be a church that takes um, questions and doubts from skeptics in particular, I'm one of them sometimes, seriously. We want to be respectful and honoring and, and, and intellectually honest and engaged with whatever doubts, whatever questions, whatever pushback you might have, because it makes sense to doubt that a virgin birth and things of that sort actually happen because of how unscientific it sounds. But here's, here's the mild pushback that I would want to give to Uh, maybe a more skeptical mind among us that uh, has decided that the Christian message, by virtue of the miracles, is a non-starter. I'm going to write it off before I even look into it because it's not supported by science and therefore it can't be true. And, 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 And my mild pushback would be this, would you apply the same writing off approach to a similar inquiry as pertains to scientific theory. Say there's a far-fetched theory like nature created itself. It just happened. Noses, teeth, fingerprints, breath, lungs, belly buttons, personalities. It all just happened. Now, you've arrived at that conclusion maybe by reading Darwin, maybe by being, you know, steeped in scientific thought and and the prevailing, you know, scientific theory and so on. And you've come to conclude that 
as far-fetched as this seems, as far as you can tell, that's how we account for the origin of things. I was asking a friend of mine last night who happens to also be a world-renowned scientist, and he's a member of our church, and I said, how do you enter into this conversation with your your colleagues who don't believe the things that you do. And he said, well, for me, it, it's, it starts this way. The conversation starts here. When, when one of my colleagues or one of my friends says, it can't happen because the miracles, my simple response is, well, in the scientific community, the, the prevailing thought is that the cosmic order, the way that the planets revolve around stars, water, earth, sky, ecosystems, photosynthesis, it all just sort of created itself as unlikely as it was. And I just say to them, let's just assume that that, that Darwin is right and, and that Darwin's theory is correct. It's still a miracle. It's still incredibly unlikely that it would happen in the way that it has. It's incredibly unlikely that you and I would be here having a conversation, expressing our personalities, disagreeing over ideas. If it all, it's highly unlikely that it all just created itself. It's a miracle if it happened that way. That's, that's a big miracle that requires a lot of faith, a lot of faith to own it and to build your life on it. And so, might it be conceivable that there's actually also possibly a first cause named God with an orderly mind who is a builder and an architect and an artist who wove it all together and who, as Rich Mullins said, is the maker of noses and other such things. See, in the same way that I cannot prove to you beyond the shadow of any doubt that God exists Neither can you prove beyond the shadow of any doubt that he does not. And so here we are as equals. And so at the very least, if I'm going to maintain my skepticism as a committed skeptic, I have to admit that my skepticism, I have to admit that my atheism is a faith commitment because I'm believing something inconceivable. If you look at the odds. And then to the honest doubters in the room, the encouragement here, I think, from the Mary account is don't think that you have to stuff it. You know, when your parents say, just believe it, the Bible says it, that settles it, end of conversation, they're scared. That's why they're reacting to you in that way. They're afraid. They're afraid that that which is dear to them will not be dear to you. And that's legitimate for parents to feel that way, even though, parents, you can have a lot more confidence in the story to be able to stand on its own without your panic, to reach the hearts of your kids or your colleagues or whoever it is that you are hoping to reach. I mean, look at this teenager, look at this 13-year-old girl-ish, 13-ish year old girl, and where she came from out of her doubts. She was actually formed through her doubts. Her convictions were birthed out of doubt. 
without which she may have not been able to, 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 to have, to have fallen, uh, followed through with her, her calling. Her doubt actually became her path to certainty. And she's troubled by the words that are spoken to her. She questioned the plausibility. She asks questions like, how? And it says she wondered. And the Greek word here is the same word from which we get our word dialogue. And the, the, the word means to logic through something, to think rationally, to assess, to evaluate, to take into account, to inquire, to go on a quest with questions. The open mind is not a threat. It's actually a pathway to intellectual integrity. But, but, doubters, staying in your doubt, there's no virtue in that as well. The purpose of doubt is to get to a place of conviction. And if you don't ever do that, you have no intellectual integrity. None. You're pushing God away. You're saying things like, well, the Bible contradicts itself, therefore it's not true. No, the Bible contradicts you, and we both know that's why you're pushing back, because you've never read it. And maybe you have. But we all know what that's really about because of the anger that you bring to that conversation. Similar to what Lewis said, he said, when I was an atheist, I was angry at God for not existing. Pressing for, I, I don't mean to be a jerk, but I, I want to logic you out of complacency if that's where you're there. If you're saying, I doubt it because I don't want to believe it, that's not honest. At least become convicted as an atheist or as a skeptic because you've actually wrestled with the realities. You know, Guinness says this, though doubt may be normal, it should be temporary and always resolved. G.K. Chesterton, another public intellectual who became a Christian, said the purpose of an open mind is the same as that of an open mouth, to shut it on something solid. Now, God gives Mary some help along the way. He gives her the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you're never going to believe even incredibly believable things you won't believe without the Holy Spirit. So, He gives her the Holy Spirit, and then He presents Elizabeth, her relative, in her old age, finally she's pregnant with her first child. All these years they've tried, she's barren, she's been through menopause, now she's pregnant. His name's going to be John. So, let that help you believe the story I'm telling you about you as well, Mary. Here's some evidence for you. Nothing is impossible with God. God is so great that He can create everything, and because He can create everything, he also has the power to suspend whatever laws he has set up in order for miracles to happen to prove a point that he's there and he's not silent, as Schaefer said. And so Mary shuts her open mind on some solid things and emerges saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So that's the virtue of doubt. It can get you to a place of deep conviction. But then we've got to go to the next one, the glory of faith. This is a big ask. I want you to bear my son. Now, there's a lot more bearing that, that Mary's going to have to do as the bearer of God's son, as the theotokos, as the Greek says. People are going to do the math, and they're going to realize, you know, she's showing on the wedding day. She's Hester Prynne. She's, she's the woman with the scarlet letter A standing for adultery on her sweater for the rest of her life. That's her name in the culture, floozy, whore. Woman of immorality. 
And then the boy's going to break your heart. When he's 12, he's going to disappear for three days. He's going to be hanging out with rabbis in the temple, and you're going to have any idea where he is, and he's not going to tell you, and you're going to be freaking out. But that's just going to be a precursor to all the other pain and misery, because when he's a young adult, he's going to be a constant embarrassment to you, because he's going to take all of his revolutionary ideas public. He's going to be too liberal for the conservatives, and he's going to be too conservative for the liberals. It's going to drive you nuts, because everybody's going to look at you. What are you going to do about your boy? Get him under control. You're going to become a single mom. She's widowed at a young age. Joseph is out of the picture. Jesus is handing his mother over to one of his best friends to take care of her at his premature death. And the crucifixion is, of course, going to bust Mary's heart up. She's going to have to stand there with the other women and watch her son die. And yet her response, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. It is not insignificant that Mary says yes to God's word before she hears the rest of the story. Before she is given a picture of what the outcomes are going to be, she says yes. Why? Because there's this overriding reality, and it's mentioned a couple of times in the text, the favor of God. You are highly favored. You are highly esteemed. And that's all you need. And so by virtue of that word alone, you are highly favored. Mary is moved to poetry. And we, we get the Magnificat, which is going to be the closing prayer of this sermon. I'll, I'll, I'll just leave you in suspense. It's her glorious poem, which is in the latter part of this chapter. But let's get back to her story. Why is she so overcome with wonder? Because she gets to participate in a miracle. She gets to participate in something that is not scientifically plausible. He who is mighty has done great things for me. So what does that have to do with us? I've never been part of a miracle. I never got pregnant when I was a virgin. Where do I fit in this story? How does my life get written into this story? Is there room at the end for the likes of us here at the ends of the earth? Well, I think Fleming Rutledge, who's um, an Episcopal... Uh, uh, teacher and uh, uh, former uh, minister in uh, the New York area. He's got a a series of Advent reflections, um, said that the same Holy Spirit that inhabited Mary inhabits us. The same promises that were given to Mary are given to us. The Mighty One can do great things for us and also in us. And so, in one of her Advent reflections… She says, the great thing about Mary is that she says no to her own version of the good life and yes to God's version of the good life, and we can participate in that miracle as well. It's a miracle to say no to your own version of the good life in favor of God's version of the good life. And I quote, the Christian life means participating in the struggle where the forces of evil are confronted by the power of God. The Christian life is a battle. It is full of tension between the values of this world and the values of the world to come. This warfare is conducted on many fronts. The businessman who refuses to go along with corrupt company policies, even though it would benefit him financially. Or the woman who has renounced the opportunity to run off with a new man and has recommitted herself to her marriage. I think of social workers and teachers who remain content with their salaries. Parents who insist on limits with their children, even when it makes their children intensely angry. Writers and accountants and builders and researchers 
who stand for excellence in an age of declining standards. These are Advent people holding their positions in spite of personal losses. It's the same kind of miracle we get to participate in every day, the miracle of a changed life, the miracle of saying no to your own small vision for the good life. Say yes to the costly and yet bigger, grander vision of God's version of the good life. You see, you are just as pregnant as Mary was. She was pregnant with a child. You are pregnant with the fruit of the Spirit if you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are poised to give birth to something magnificent and magical and miraculous into the world called love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in this partisan, toxic, angry, pissy climate that we're in. You are pregnant with something better. You are pregnant with a higher version of humanity. You are pregnant with the best version of what you can be. Ready to give birth? You in? The name of the miracle is Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. That's my story. God took an entitled brat, selfish, foul-mouthed, resentful, disrespectful, drunk, aimless young man, and set him on a different trajectory, impregnated me with fruit. The very first two things that God asked of me were violations of my own version of the good life, because my version of the good life, I'm a three on the Enneagram, my version on the good life, uh, my version of the good life is for me to have a great reputation. And God's first two words for me were confess and repair. I'd stolen from an employer, and so I had to go back and confess because of the word of the Lord what I'd done and make reparation, make restitution for what I'd taken, and be ready to take the consequences. And I cheated on some exams in college. And so the word of the Lord for me was, go and confess what you stole. You stole the hard-earned A's and B's that other students worked for. Go confess it. And so I went to the president of the university and confessed what I did. Now, in both instances, the second instance, I could have lost my diploma. I knew that was what, it, what was at risk. In both instances, I was extended grace, but that's not the point. The point is this. You being pregnant with the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit will cause you to do things that you never fathomed, that will make people respect your private life just as much as they respect your public one. You become a one-faced person instead of a two-faced person. It's a great way to live. It's a great story to be part of. This friend is the true magic of Christmas, the miracle of of a transformed life, and we can all get in on that, and we can all, if we say similar things, let it be to me according to your word, can also become poets in our time. Speaking of, will you pray with me as we ask the Virgin Mary herself to lead us in prayer from the second half of Luke chapter 1 before we come to the table and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Lord Jesus, let it be to us according to your word. Cause us to love and be drawn toward your version of the good life and to say no to our own vision of a small story when you've invited us into this grand narrative and impregnated us by your Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit that we are now privileged to take out into the world for the common good. Lord, thank you for the bread and the cup in front of us. And even as it was spilled out earlier in the service by accident, I couldn't help recognize in that moment how it was so purposefully spilled out by you as the women showed up to grieve your loss at the cross. Lord, take this bread, take this cup, and apply your great sacrifice, which speaks to us the glorious word of favor, which is also a word that hovers over us to give us courage to say no to our own version of the good life and yes to yours. Teach us what that means in our time and in our day and in our lives, we pray in your name. Amen.